Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. I'm at Carl Costello Gallery, and I'm here to meet Callum Eaton, whose show Look But Don't Touch opened on the 18th of August and closes tomorrow. We came in early to get a walkthrough of this incredible exhibition so it can live on after it closes tomorrow. Callum, hello. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So if I were to ask you, who are you and what do you do, what would you say? Goodness, uh, I guess I'm Callum Eaton, and I'm a, a realistic painter of everyday objects. I uh, studied at Goldsmiths, graduated in 2019, kind of have always had this interest in uh, photorealistic painting, but it, was, it had like a different kind of um, feeling to it before. It was more portraiture, like people, um, faces, full body, all that stuff, and... Um, now it's turned to objects. I got kind of disillusioned by just painting my friends and, and family members and myself a lot, even though I do pop up a few times in the show. But yeah, I see, I see the paintings in the show as more um, portraits of objects. So it's still along a similar vein. Everything's very specific, but they're just not people anymore. They're things. However, on the things, some of your self-portraits show up. For instance, we're standing beside a photo booth, a photo me is on it, and your portrait's in the corner. Can you talk me through this painting? Yeah, so um, this painting is called Forgive Me Father For I Have Sinned. And it kind of has, um, it, the title of harks back to kind of like a religious upbringing. I was, I was raised a Catholic, not practicing so much anymore, but... As soon as I saw this photo booth, which is just around the corner from my studio um, near Bank, it, it exists in a, in a post office. And I'd seen a few in Liverpool Street, and they were interesting. And I saw this one, and suddenly, I don't know what it was, but the way the curtain was falling, and the way that someone was sat inside it when I first saw it, it looked just like a confessional booth. And I thought, there's something kind of interesting to this, which is where the title came from. And um, so, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. You kind of sit in the confessional, and you talk about all the, all the wrong things you've done and try and get absolved of your, you know, shouting at your mum or something, whatever I used to say in these things. And so having my self-portrait in there is like a very, like, you know, self-referential kind of a part of the painting. Also, I love painting faces still, even though, like, it's not a massive part of my practice anymore. It's still, like, I like to flex that muscle every now and then. But, um, yeah, this painting, it was super fun because it has a lot of the depth that I enjoy painting, like the lifts that we'll come to later. But you can really like step into these paintings and there's like a, a space for you to exist with inside, like inside the painting. Kind of how like older paintings, like Renaissance paintings, it used to be, um, you know, the painting was like a window into something. And I feel like these are very like obvious kind of like there is a space inside for you to exist within. There's also the curtain on this one. The curtain hugs back to I was having a conversation with um, Hector Campbell, who's a very good friend, an amazing writer. And he was telling me about the, um, the Grecian tale of the artist with his uh, creating a painting so realistic that the birds fly down and try to eat the grapes off of the painting. And so this kind of curtain has kind of echoes of that. It's also like echoes a few of my favorite paintings from like Titian. Titian has like one of the most amazing paintings in the National Gallery, um, which is the Diana and Actian myth, where like Actian comes in pulls back the curtain to find like Diana and all the nymphs bathing and then he gets turned into a stag and then hunted by his own hounds and killed to death by his own dogs. And so there's kind of that like reference of like Titian, pull the curtain back, what are you going to find? What's the consequences of doing that? Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It kind of all ties into this narrative. 
What was your early life like, and, and when did you realize you were going to be an artist? Uh, my early life was, was great. I mean, my family are lovely, lovely people. My dad's an architect. Um, my mum is a textiles teacher. So they, like, I grew up in a fairly, like, it's a fairly creative household, but it was very, like, it was quite practical creativity. Um, I wanted to be an architect for a while. Uh, I actually got into university to do architecture, and then the last minute I saw a friend of mine uh, he was like, they were good at they were good at art, but I like I kind of thought it was like my thing at the time, and uh, they were like I might study fine art, and I was like no I I want to do that I want that to be my thing, but um I kind of glossed over quite an important uh, detail I was on holiday with my family when I was like seventeen, and pre this I wasn't really that into art I was like kind of more sporty I I used to like uh, ride out racehorses like amateur jockeying sort of thing when I was a bit shorter. I was very like sporty. That's also in my family, like horse racing. Two of my cousins are jockeys. One of them is now a trainer. Like it's, it's very like sporty, very rugby, all that kind of stuff. I was on holiday and it was a rainy day in Spain and there was nothing really to do. We couldn't go to the beach, couldn't do the pool. Um, so we decided to draw. And my sister was very good at drawing and my dad's obviously very good at drawing and my mum is also very good at drawing. And, <laughs> I started drawing this man with a beard because it was kind of that time where Instagram lumberjack men were kind of all the rage. And I was like, oh, draw, just draw this guy. And like four hours later, my mum comes back and kind of looks over my shoulder and goes, wow, that's better than your sister's. That was all I needed. That, that was it. I was off. And suddenly, like, my middle child competitive streak was, like, set. I was told that I was good at something because I was, I was kind of average at everything else before. I wasn't extremely academic. I liked school in some ways. I like the social aspect. I like the sport. I, I did enjoy um, academia, but I just wasn't super intelligent or super sporty. I was like kind of B team or like the bottom of the A team for like all the sports. So suddenly being told like you're good at something was kind of, yeah, that was like the first time it properly ever happened. And I was like, okay, let's go. So it was, I kind of got into art through being competitive, which is quite ironic. Let's walk over to this phone box. Yeah. What's this piece titled? Oh, I think it's called Who's Lost Mary. Does this have the Catholicism in it again? Who's Lost bit, Mary? Yeah. Wow. yeah, Who's Lost Mary. Yeah, I guess this was more of a... I wasn't actually thinking so much of, uh, of, of religious iconography in this painting, but it does very much have like an altarpiece kind of feel now that we, we're talking about it with the gold and the shimmer. It's like it's set in to the thing, but the Lost Mary was more relating to the, you know, the vape box. So just to tell you what we're looking at, we're looking at a rectangular painting, portrait hang, and it's of a phone box, the old kind of phone box. Painting metal isn't easy, or shiny surfaces, and set on the top of the phone box is a vape called Lost Mary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pineapple ice flavor. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, this painting, it's true to scale. I, sh I should probably mention now everything in the uh, entire show is, is true to scale. I take photos of them and then go back and measure. Why does that matter to you? That's a good question. I see these paintings, this is going to be a very roundabout way of answering this question, but I see these paintings as um, painted ready-mades. So if, if I was kind of uh, brave enough, I would probably just try and like get phone boxes and put them in the gallery themselves. But I love painting too much and I have such a restless mind that one of the only things I can do that kind of quiets it is painting. It's just decision-making after decision-making after decision-making. And once there's no more decisions to make or no more like questions to be answered, the painting's finished. Well, it's interesting because some of the 
paintings of what we'll all now refer to as ready-mades, because mm. I get that kind of yeah. Duchampian thing you're yeah, going yeah. for, are of uh, items that aren't as relevant as they once were in society. We don't use phone boxes. We don't even carry coins that much. Yeah, yeah. So there's a certain, they're almost relics of a past way of living. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with someone once and they kind of described what I did as social archaeology which I thought was um, super, super interesting because there is this kind of archival relic nature to everything I paint. Like, I, I, I'm 26, so I was raised without a mobile phone in my pocket, but I, I had one pretty quickly. As soon as like, I was you know, out and about with my friends, I was 13, 14, I kind of had like a little Nokia brick sort of thing. And so I've never actually had to use one of these. And now seeing these and all the, like, you know, this one, we're looking at this painting with the with the actual telephone with this cord dangling off the frame. It's like it's completely unusable. It's not even in use. No one uses them. The screen's off. I don't even know if this one works, but it's used to you know display a little lost Mary or like in the other painting, it's used to store someone's like unopened bottle of uh, can of Red Stripe in the corner. They're not used anymore for their intended purpose. Like you see telephone boxes now, and it's like. The only other time I've seen people in telephone boxes are either people sleeping or people on mobile phones in the telephone box. Or storage. Or storage, yeah. Or, or tourists who associate the red phone. There you go. Phone. People opening the door and, like, yeah, taking the photo in front of the, like, Big Ben or something. Yeah, they're, they're completely out of favor now. So just on the ready-made thing, how big an influence is Duchamp on your career? And in a broader sense, mm. what influences you culturally and artistically, and what shaped your approach to your work? That's so interesting. Duchamp was obviously one of the first kind of like uh, contemporary artists that we kind of get, I got taught about on like my foundation and stuff. I remember when I, when I saw it, everyone else kind of had this reaction of like, oh, what? And I was like, that's like badass. Like to just do nothing to, or to do like the minimum amount of work as possible. It's like, Ollie um, Epp, who I'm sure we'll get into in a bit, uh, always used to say to me, work smart, not hard. And obviously you've got to work hard as well, but working smart is so uh, important and Duchamp was kind of the, the master of working smart. In terms of other influences, cultural influences, I honestly, part of the reason that I should say I was, I was a bit late today to this interview, <laughs> um, and part of the reason that I was late was because I got caught photographing about three things on the way here and I was cycling and like, there was a few gates with like the crisscross, you know, and I just thought, oh God, that's too good, I can't not. And like, then something else caught my attention, the telephone box caught my attention, and I was kind of like, I'm always scanning for things. So just being out and, and, and cycling around in the world, like, I find the world quite fascinating, and like how things change, and um, I'm constantly getting distracted by things, which is, yeah, well, I was late today, so I do apologize. <laughs> no need, you weren't late, really. <laughs> Thank you. Is this a diptych, or are these two individual pieces? And, and um, we're looking at laundrettes and washer-dryer, and they also act as a portrait of you, a self-portrait of you, and the other one has a reflective surface that provides an alternative universe that you could be part of, of which, unless you were standing here, it's difficult to describe, but the reflection in the open laundrette tumble-dryer yeah. shows one, two, three, four other ones. So it's just a feat and fabulous painting, firstly. Uh, I do want you to talk a little bit about your materials as well, yeah. but, and, and your process. But what's the title of this one? So, so this one, with the self-portrait and the reflection, is um, Dirty Boy. 
So they're not a diptych, they're no. singular. So Dirty is, boy. Dirty okay. boy, and this one's absolution. More Catholicism. Um, yeah, so the, the titles of these were kind of, um, they came to me very like late in the day. And the, the Dirty Boy one is obviously because I'm, I'm reflected in this laundrette kind of. I remember with these, these are the Barbican laundrettes. So they're, they're fairly like, famous is the wrong word, but they're kind of like notorious machines because lots of music videos get shot here. Lots of kind of photography shoots happen. So when I went in to take the photos, I got uh, instantly yelled at and told to stop. And I had to call the man who was in charge or owned the laundrette. And like, he wasn't happy with me being there without paying. And like, I was like, I'm just going to be there for one second with my phone. So I literally ran back in and just like snapped very, very quickly uh, these things. So I'm kind of hunched over. What a good story. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely an experience. And the lady behind the desk, she was so lovely to me. She was like, it's okay, just be quick, be quick. So I took these photos and they do look like, like a diptych because they're the same scale. They look like the same machine, but they're not the same machine. They exist right next to each other. So there's a few small details that will point that out, like this machine only takes a new 50p sticker. And that's um, on Absolution? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and that, so that one This exist. Absolution has a sign that says, these machines only take new 50p's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there's some of the scuffing from the um, wooden bench that sits like here where you, where you sit and wait for your clothes to dry and move that bench out of the way so I could get the full view. But one of them's got other scratches. And so they're... I kind of wanted them to look like exactly the same machine until closer inspection. And I think that's a theme that runs through all the paintings is like they reward closer looking. I think everything, there's always something to gain. Little Easter eggs is how I like to think of them if you really look a bit harder. Let's go into the next room. Let's do it. In the second room, we have an incredible lift. Some... I call them Coke machines, but they're, I think, vending machines is what we yeah. call them. And I instantly thought of the Damien Hirst show yes. at Gagosian that had the vending machines in it. Funnily enough, I never saw that show. But I have been sent the, um, the image of his vending machines since making the painting, and uh, some people have told me they actually got the Coke cans. Cause they, there was, I have them. You have one? Yeah. I really want to do a painting of one of those. I think it would be quite like a referential. I'll try and find it for Yeah, you. I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean, Damien Hirst actually is another, um, speaking of the kind of like Duchampian ready-made idea, he's always been someone, as much as he gets a lot of heat in the art world, uh, I've always been very, very attracted to the medicine cabinets, to, I think it's the fact paintings, in fact, sculptures. Another lapse Catholic. Really? Oh, interesting. But another thing that I've always loved about Damien Hirst is his, um, so the medicine cabinets were one of my other big art influences from early on, like, you know, just like repetition of things in like this case and... The other paintings I loved of his were uh, the spot paintings. Repetition, repetition. And we're standing here in front of, you know, something that is, is pure repetition and, yeah, pain. We're standing in front of a vending machine with Coke, Cola, Diet Coke and Fanta. Mm-hmm. The word on it says possibly the best drink you'll buy today. Mm-hmm. This painting, um, I look at it now and I'm, I'm so pleased that I was able to complete it. It was a mission to get the image and to make. So the day that I decided that I wanted to do this, I... Where was this vending machine? I know you have locations around London. Yeah, well, this is the thing. So I went to to Westfield in Stratford um, to go and find this, and all of the vending machines are placed out by the toilets, funnily enough, next to the photo booth machines, which makes no sense. But they're all in such dark places that I was photographing all of them, hoping that one of them was going to be in a slightly lighter place or there was going to be a window nearby, and there wasn't. So I went to the Westfield in Stratford, then went to the Westfield in White City, Shepherd's Bush, 
same thing again. Um, they were all like tucked away in these dark little dingy corners. So then I thought, where's the other place I've seen one? And I knew that there was one in Gatwick. So I then got the train down to, to Clapham and then got the Gatwick Express to the airport and then finally got the photo, took a few photos and then brought it back and started immediately. And then it was, a, it was about a five month test of my patience. It was, it was not, normally I work on one painting at a time and I just get them done as, as you know, I just try and get into the painting and, and, and stay in there. And then once it's done, it's, it's finished and I can touch them up later. But this one, I just couldn't, I couldn't physically do it. There was just far too much repetition. It was almost painful to do, but like I very much enjoyed finishing it in retrospect. What materials do you use? If it, I mean, what we have here is we not just have the Coke bottles, but we also have the bottles behind the Coke bottles mm. and the plastic that holds them in and the reflective surfaces and the look of plastic bottles and how do you achieve that with paint. Mm -hmm. What is your process? Do you use tape? Is it oil or acrylic? All of these paintings are pretty much all oil. There is some acrylic on like some areas for the red in this painting is acrylic because I wanted to just get working on the middle bit immediately. And is it linen or canvas? It's all canvas, yeah. So uh, I do use a lot of tape though. There's a lot of taping and there's a lot of cutting on the canvas. Anyone that comes into my studio while I'm cutting is normally quite terrified because I'm there with like a fresh scalpel blade with tape on these like nearly finished paintings just cutting shapes out like to, and they're just like, what are you doing? But um, yeah. How did that practice, how did you evolve into that from portraits, which yeah. is what you used to do? Yeah, yeah, so I mean, I was, um, I was living back in Bath, moved into objects and I was making all of these paintings um, without tape and stuff and just kind of drawing them out and then freehand painting, pretty much working from the top left corner down to the bottom right. It was when I look back at some early process shots, I'm, I'm, I honestly don't know how I made it work because it's just, it, it's the strangest way to paint. Um, but since then, uh, I got the most amazing opportunity to work as um, Ollie Epps' assistant for, was meant to be a year, it turned out to be eight months because he helped me so much that I, I couldn't stay working for him anymore because there was just too many opportunities coming, which I thank him and mainly only him for because he was, he was, anyone that knows Ollie, he's the most generous, um, lovely person ever. Known for it. It's yeah. usually just musicians who collaborate like that because this is the opportunity of having a band, so yeah, it's yeah. to their advantage to collaborate. Ollie does it as an artist, and it's, he's, there's so many people who tell the story of him helping them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's, he's such a lovely, giving person. It's, and like, with, with advice, with kind of, you know, material advice, with life advice, career advice, just everything, he's just so, so generous, and I, I owe that man so much. But when I started working for him, funnily enough, in the interview, um, which I was absolutely terrified for, I was so nervous going into it, and um, one of the interview with Ollie. Yeah, yeah. So that we had like a little like chit chat, and then there was a few practical tasks. And I was like, oh, thank God for the practical tasks, because I was getting really nervous and talking too much. Um, and he said there was two things he he wanted me to do. It was a uh, color mixing to, to against these swatches and try and get it as close as possible. And at the time, I'd never really used acrylic paint, so I didn't know that acrylic paint dries quite like maybe two shades darker than what you see when you put it down. So that kind of threw me off. And then the next one was, uh, was cutting these, uh, he, he'd done with like a compass, two circles, like one big circle, one small one. And he was like, here's a scalpel. You have like five minutes to cut out these two circles, like try and do your best. And I had no idea how hard to push. I didn't know how thick the tape was. I didn't know how sharp the blade was. I had no idea what was going on. Somehow got the job. But um, after that, yeah, tape is such a big part of uh, 
what Ollie did, and I just adopted it in my own my own kind of way to make my life kind of slightly quicker. And it, it's you're just able to get blends in places that initially, like normally, if I didn't use tape, would be very very difficult to get blends, or it take layers to then like sharpen up the lines after the blends. It's, it just speeds me up. I've visited your show maybe ten times, <laughs> and I've brought people with me, and it seems to be this double lift mm -hmm. that everyone talks about and I've had people who I've come in with who said their friends have told them about this piece <laughs> and say it's a, a studio lift and the other thing regarding Instagram everyone wants to be photographed with this piece so I need to know the title and the story behind this lift. Um, so the title of this is when one door opens another door closes and uh, it's picturing two elevators um, they're actually the same elevator and they exist in the studio building that I have at the moment, which is um, an old office in Bank or Tower Hill. And so I kind of immediately, when I saw these, and like, I'm not sure when it happened, but they were just like opening and closing. I was standing in front of them, my noise cancelling headphones on, I was completely out of it. And I just looked up, and these, these doors just opened, and inside was this glowing golden, like, abyss. And I was like, whoa, I kind of like, and then I let them close, and I was like, well, that's also interesting. And there was a, you know, once again, a lot of references to being able to step into the painting. And once again, these things are life-size, to, absolutely to scale. I think this one might be a few centimeters out. I think it's in a video that I did recently. I realized it was like five centimeters out. But um, yeah, these have become quite important paintings to me. And I think this is maybe the direction that I'm seeing myself going. What would you say art is for? I'm, I'm of the opinion, I think art can... Art can help people look at things in like a different way. It kind of recontextualizes. When I like when I've talked about these works being um, being painted ready-made, you take these things out of context, and suddenly people look at them a lot harder. You know, like a telephone box, most people just walk past and and that's it. Whereas I walk past and photograph them, and then you when you've seen it once or you painted it once, you can't help but notice the subtle nuances between each and every one. And so these elevators, it's like they're. No one, no one goes to an office to see the elevator. They're all kind of these inconsequential kind of things that are like in the spaces between where you've come from and where you're going. The elevators just help you get to the floors. The vending machines just like quench your thirst when you're at the airport. No one's going apart from me to an airport to see the vending machine. Um, so I just hope that from painting these very mundane things, people suddenly start seeing the beauty in these very basic office lifts like these aren't fancy ones these aren't like um from like the ritz they're not like they're not nice lifts they're just very bog standard office lifts which funnily enough are actually getting um my building's getting knocked down within the next six months to a year so we're, we're getting moved on uh, pretty soon and so i've kind of joked recently to a lot of people that uh that i have like the opposite of a miter's touch and someone said recently it's a shiter's touch because everything I paint seems to fall to shit, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I think, quite important. And um, we haven't spoken about it yet, but the, this is my second solo show, uh, my first in London. Uh, but Where was the other one? It was in Paris um, at a gallery called Long Story Short. And um, I have to thank Al Freeman for getting me, uh, getting me in contact with that gallery. Al Freeman is another um, artist hero of mine, along with many others who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But... Um, the show is called Hole in the Wall in Paris, and it was uh, 13, uh, once again to scale, but ATM machines, like cash machines. 
and they just were all over the gallery. They're all slightly different sizes. They're all slightly different dimensions, but they're all once again true to scale. And um, I think from that show, four, four of them have now been like completely ripped out, disappeared. And that's the ones I know of, but uh, the ones I've seen boarded up or just completely something else is in their place now. So these things are kind of what we spoke about earlier. They're archival. They're kind of documenting a certain time where, you know, with cash machines, for example, it's like you don't really use cash now unless it's for like a nail appointment or like late night activities, you know. So these things, uh, they exist, but they're just they're just totems. They're contending with our physical space, but not in a way that like, they're just annoying, they're annoying, they're useless. Yeah, but they're also totems, because I could see them, and I'm reluctant to say the British Museum, but yeah, yeah, I could see them in a hundred years being somewhere like the British Museum, just yeah. archiving who we were as a society. Yeah, could you, it's like, could you imagine looking at these things in, in 20 years time, 30 years time ago, what was that? A hundred years time. Right, yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, even if you look at like, um, you know, TVs from like 50 years ago or 60 years ago, you go, what the hell is that? Even TVs from 10 years ago are a little bit like, God, that's so basic. And uh, yeah, these telephones, they're like, they're the most amazing little sculptures and the, the, the glowing one in the other room just shines and like... The I think that's why they're fascinating because you feel like you're time traveling. Yeah, there is definitely, there is definitely a part of that. I mean, one of my um, other favorite artists, uh, George Shaw, he's been a, a big influence on kind of... Um, Painting the mundane, like really, he, I always talk about artists giving me permission to like feeling like I had permission to do things. And, and George just made these completely unremarkable landscapes. Um, you know, the scenes for the most incredible kind of apocalyptic feeling paintings, completely void of people, which is another thing that I enjoy about them. There's, there's never a person in them. There might be like a reflection or a shadow, or I think he did one at the National Gallery, which had him like peeing against a tree. But um, yeah, he always talked about uh, the telephone boxes as being time machines. They, they, they just stand, they stand on the estate that he paints and like everything else crumbles around it and everything's getting redone and redeveloped. But these telephone boxes somehow seem to stay, even though they're like probably the least functional things in the area. T totems, as you said so beautifully earlier. Yeah, totems, totems or relics or yeah. If you could uh, live with one piece of art and money isn't the deciding factor, what would it be and why? This is like that tool cart question, like the, the art heist. And I've always, I've always racked my brain when it comes to like, goodness, that is such a difficult question. It's a good game to play that. It really is. Okay, oh, there's like two, there's two that are really coming to mind. I would love to own anything by Alexander Guy. Anything by Sandy would be the most amazing painting ever. I'm trying to think of my favorite one. There's actually one across the road, which is the, the six um, ashtrays. One of the tailors across the street has it in there. Yeah, 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 they have it across the street. And um, I'd love to own one of those. Or even like his, the fly killer. I think that's amazing. Um, anything by Sandy. The other person I'm thinking of is Rafa Silvarez, um, who's a dear friend and has been a big influence on kind of, once again, the ordinary objects and creating really sleek, sleek finished paintings, soft blends, like maybe one of his paintings. Callum Eaton, Look But Don't Touch, was at Carl Koschill Gallery from the 18th of August to the 9th of September. This will be published after the show is closed, but go online, have a look at it, and you'll have certainly more shows, and we wanted to keep it alive in the podcast. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Callum. Thank you very much, Maeve. 
You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. This podcast is produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. The music is by Korshid Homi. Thank you for listening.